0: Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com.
1: Thank you for getting started. Y'all, I am excited about this show tonight. I mean, you know, being Black American, I thought this was a topic that I kind of, you know, knew. Until we started preparing for this and I had attended a few of Vic's um, virtual um, book studies. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know that stuff. But it wasn't until I stepped into the seven books that I began to have an OMG moment. But I'm gonna break it down for y'all tonight, but let me introduce Vic. Vic Sorrell is a born communicator focused on conversations that bring us closer to realizing the value of everyday life. His work in HIV support services within the nonprofit, academic, and industrial arenas has spanned over decades. It includes serving Nashville Cares, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and Galeed Sciences. He is a holistic life coach, program facilitator, and most important, a believer in the resilience of the human heart. Mm -hmm. Vic believes in realizing our potential lives inside, learning what we naturally do well, honoring our talents, into strengths, honing, excuse me, our talents into strengths, and serving the world by understanding what we were born to be. Man, Vic, thank you for being here tonight, man. I'm so excited, man. You know, we've been talking over months, man, and I know we had kind of planned one thing or another, but then we just made it happen, man. I just want to say thank you for being here. I want to say thank you for the honor of being here.
2: I've watched your show before, and uh, and now here I am. so and and I', yeah, no place I'd rather be to tell you the truth. Thank you for that.
1: Awesome, awesome. Well, well, welcome, and thank you for coming back. You know, Vic when I was thinking about this um, show, I had a focus group um, and the team was giving me feedback, and they said, you know, we really want to see some additional stories the multicultural, you know, perspective. So when I began to think about it, I'm like, hmm, who can we begin to spotlight? And a few thoughts came, but I said, you know what? I want Vic to be first. You know, I had spent some time, you know, I remember when I first showed up to your book club, I gave you such a hard time, man. Uh, And and one thing I could say is you were extremely patient with me. I, I could only imagine what you were thinking was like, who is this guy who shows up giving me such a hard time I mean, what was your first impression when I first showed up? Do you remember that? Absolutely remember. Uh,
2: And my first impression was this conversation is going to be good. uh, Because you were willing to say what was on your mind. Uh, And a lot of times that's our, that's the hardest part for us to just get to the heart of what we really want to say, but we're not sure it's okay to say it. Yeah. Uh, And a lot lot of times um, if if you just will and you were and you were willing, uh, then then the conversation will will take care of itself. And I think that's what happened that night. Uh, You know, we had a a really great a couple of really great conversations. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, I think just your willingness um, to uh, to be authentic and to say to say it, that's that's really what we're here to do, I think.
1: You know, I can appreciate that. Um, Sometimes I've been described as a a no BS type of personality. (laughs) It it, it gives you friends sometimes, and other times it gives you other things. But the thing that I noticed is I said, you know what? This brother is extremely patient. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed from each time is that you were patient and you listened. But let's kind of get into it. Let's get the people to understand who you are. So please tell us about your career, your background and how you first realized that you will be doing the work of advocating for others.
2: Well, ironically, my first part of my career, uh, the first eight years where we hadn't necessarily talked about this yet, but we're in country music, marketing and promotions. And so a very conservative, very racist, very um, difficult bubble to be in. And uh, in the recession of 2008, my position was eliminated and I needed a job. And so a friend of mine sent me a a Craigslist post. She was also looking for a job at the time. And she said, I don't know if you'd ever consider anything like this or if you have the experience, but I just thought of you when I saw this. So I sent it. That was my first job in HIV with Nashville Cares as a, an HIV prevention um, services coordinator. And very much like my friend who sent me the job posting, I had no idea if I qualified. I had no idea what kind of experience I would need, but I knew I needed a job. And I knew that it sounded like something that I could, um, a vehicle for me to serve. And I was really hungry for uh, a vocation and not a job. I wanted something where my humanity could serve. So it all worked out. I ended up getting that job. And 12 years later, I still work in the HIV arena. Uh, I've done many different roles, many different types of of jobs. But what was so important for who I am now and the work that I do now is that right as I got into HIV, the face and the faces of who was most affected changed. So up until around that time, 2008 ish, mostly because of the media and not necessarily because of fact, but because of the media, HIV was pretty much known to be a white gay man's disease. And within the next five to 10 years, what we started to see in the data was that not only black men who have sex with men, because not everybody, not every man who has sex with men identifies as gay. And that's important. So not only black men who have sex with men, but black people in general and brown people are disproportionately affected by HIV. And so then the question becomes why? So then the conversation, as we were just saying, when you have the heart, the, willing to, the willingness to ask the difficult questions, to go deeper, what comes up? Well, what comes up is health disparity. What comes up is racism. What comes up is uh, lack of resources being um, equitably dispersed and made available. So these conversations are the conversations that started to happen when we sat down at tables to talk about HIV prevention. So that's when I started to learn about how black and brown people in this country have a very significantly different experience many times than I had growing up. And I grew up in a small rural area in southwestern Virginia, and then I came to Nashville So learning about those differences helped me to better understand as a white man, period, the fact that I'm gay is is in there, but as a white man, I'm still privy to an unearned privilege in our society, unearned privileges that I don't deserve. But that happened naturally as the result of our caste system, which, you know, that's one of the books that we will probably talk a little bit about later. Not a class system, but a caste system that basically says in our country and many others that certain lives are more valuable when they're uh, encased in certain in white skin, basically. So that's when I came to the place of understanding I have an opportunity. I haven't. Awesome. Yeah, as the result
1: of, of that unearned privilege. You know, thanks for sharing that story, Vic. Because you know, as I can think through this, I'm just thinking the work of advocating for others is some hard work. Right? I mean, it's hard enough to advocate for our own self, right? But advocating for others, I mean, you know, I, I was very curious at how you got started. And I love that part about your, the story where this friend of yours said, hey, you know, I think this is something that resonates with you. And I don't know what to call it, but you know what I mean? I think she saw something, but but that's a great thing. So let's talk about some of the the, the hard part. And you've already mentioned it Why we're here, right? Mm-hmm. In beginning to do this story, I know I was going to have to ask the hard questions. And I'm pleased that when you and I went through our, you know, conversation he's like Calvin let's do it let's talk about it and it made me proud yes again so let's talk about the topic of nice racism Mm -hmm. please tell us about how you feel that you have gone beyond where most people exist you know I call it just patting themselves on the back you know just being proud of what they're doing but not just you in particular but if you would just kind of explain that term, nice racism, and if not, I'll kind of jump in there. But I would love to kind of see what you think about that, and how you feel that you have, at some point, decided to do something more than just nice racism.
2: So I think for me, and and many people, this is certainly not a um, a topic that is that is not dynamic. In other words, let me, let me rephrase that and say this is a very dynamic topic. So this is one mm-hmm. aspect of um, nice racism. But for me, the first thing that comes up when I think about that is people focusing more. And when I say people, uh, people who are white most often, focusing more on their contribution, what they're doing out of the goodness of their hearts to help others who are somehow not the same, right? uh, As they see themselves being. A lot of times when you're in that space and your focus is your contribution and what you're doing instead of what you're learning and your own investment in yourself and your education, then what happens inevitably has happened through me, it's a part of it, is you end up doing more harm than good because you get in certain spaces where you don't know how your mere presence as a white person is a trigger, is a trigger, is a, is a, is a, is a discomfort, and a lot of times when we don't know that as white people and we just want to barge in and start talking about how we can help and what we can do and what we think, that's the biggest one. Let me tell you what I think about what your problem is <laughs> as, a, as a brown man in this country, right? And let me tell you how, what I think we can do to help you, right? There's significant harm there in that.
1: Well, you know, thanks for sharing that because you reminded me in that first session I attended, it definitely reminds me of my experience. And my experience was, man, this guy is a pretty nice guy. But I wonder if he knows about this concept of the white savior, you know, the white savior where, you know, the white person who's very proud of themselves, they swoop in, you know, they help a few, you know, brown people, you know, that Sally Struthers moment, right? And they go home and they said, I did a great job. Yet this person doesn't realize that they may be doing things, in my opinion, that look good on a resume or look good in their community, but they may not be doing the work
2: Mm -hmm.
1: of education. And I'm going to pivot for a second because I know one thing that you're passionate about is the education part. Mm -hmm. Tell tell me about this concept of because what I'm going to conclude from what you said is that you've probably been there. You've been guilty of nice racism. But then you decided to do the work. And I'm calling it the work of education. Tell me what's your experience or thoughts about hey, you know, I was at this place called Nice Racism, didn't know I was there, but then I started doing the work of education. Mm-hmm. Why was that important to you with your personality and what you do?
2: Probably the most important thing that ever happened in my professional career was. And not only in my professional career, but for me as a human being, uh, one of the most important things for sure was I was uh, working an outreach event, HIV prevention, education, outreach at a Nashville Black Pride event. And I was the only white person in a party, uh, kickoff party of about 200 people and very much unconsciously Yes, I was in that space thinking, it's very cool that I am a white person, that I'm in this space. You know, that says a lot about my heart. That says a lot about what's important to me. Again, I was very focused on the contribution that I saw myself making and how I saw saw myself as that time as a helper. So. We're there, we're having a great time. All of a sudden, uh, a friend who also happened to be the DJ said over the mic, y'all, I saw Vic so real in the house. How's that white privilege working for you now? And textbook white fragility happened for me in that moment. I didn't even know what that meant at that time but I literally was humiliated I was angry. I was embarrassed. I was all of these things at once. My colleague, who was with me, a black man, is watching me do this. Now, if you can imagine, you know, the the Peanuts character, Pigpen, who spins in a cloud of dust everywhere. He goes, this is exactly what was going on with me, like lost my mind. Why would he betray me like that? Why would he call me out? Why would he embarrass me? Why, why when I'm here to support this event and do a good thing, right? I'm one of the good white people. Absolutely, right? That's one of the, yeah, nice racism 101 right there. I'm one of the good white people. So my black colleague just watches this and he doesn't say anything. And he finally says to me, after I insist that we leave, he says, you obviously don't understand why I can't support you right now. And I said, I absolutely don't understand. I was just obviously very uh,
3: unfairly attacked. And he said to me, well, he said,
2: In not so many words, it's not my job to teach you, but if you care enough to learn, there is a ton of information available to you simply by Googling racism, white privilege, white supremacy. And if you truly wanna know and you have the heart to do the work, you'll do it. But my friend, Your intellect has not yet caught up with your heart. And when he said that, my life changed in an instant because I knew exactly what he meant. And I could see the imbalance. And even though I didn't have the intellectual uh, understanding at that point, I could see how not knowing could make me harmful in the spaces that I was in, in the work that I was doing. Um, not only harmful, but insulting, off-putting, you know? Um, so I started the work and that was about 10 years ago. And I continue the work because what I realized is the more I learn, the more there is to learn, right? I mean, that's there's no question that understanding um, the dynamics around the inequities that relate to race in our country and in our world are so nuanced and so insidious that you could literally talk about a mul- multiple different scenarios on a daily basis the rest of your life and never, never get them all. You really could the way that this stuff shows up, and when I say this stuff, I mean racism. I mean white supremacy in that we have been socialized, all of us, in a, in a society where white lives are, have been, continue to be in many cases, more valued than black and brown lives. And it shows up because it's literally in our DNA. And that's one of the things that you, Resma does an amazing job in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, talking about how we literally carry these beliefs unconsciously in our DNA from generation to generation to generation. And it can take up to seven generations for some of the compounded trauma to dissipate the traumas that we experience on both sides of this equation.
1: Well, you know, Vic, you remind me of the conversation I was having with someone. I was kind of reviewing these books and I shared it with a person and our conversation was like, wow, this is not just a black thing. This is a thing that is, the word she used was entrenched in every single person in this country. Mm -hmm. OMG, thank you for sharing that story. And similar to you, I was just had a moment of how deep this stuff goes, goes, how wide, how it touches everyone, so much so that it's in our DNA. And we're gonna get into that when we um, cover the books. I'm actually putting um, the list of books in the chat so you guys can follow the topic because Vic loves to use the author of the books and I always have to remember which book he's speaking up. So I put that in the chat so you guys can know. So, so Vic, let's transition to this because one of the things that I, I wanted to um, talk about this is I have some good friends, right? And, and people have been told, told me that there are some good open-minded people out there who really, really, really want to understand what it means to be an ally. For me, I grew up in an environment where I've always had friends that didn't look like me. Throughout my life, I always continued to break bread with people who look different from me. So much so as I travel from state to state, I can typically take a quick assessment of the black-white relations in that state or city. And I always tell people, you go to any restaurant, Look around the room and ask yourself, how many people who don't look alike are breaking bread together? No place is perfect, but I guarantee you, you'll see more and less of that in many different places. But based on these open-minded people who are really like this word ally, allyship, what does it mean? My conclusion is they haven't had a chance to be in the room. They haven't had a chance to have friends that didn't look like them maybe they weren't in a very progressive city where people broke bread together. What are your thoughts for people who want to be, you know, in these conversations or how would you recommend that they would get started?
2: I think personally for me, reading has been a great way to not only start, but continue. Um, Also Googling, Googling terms that you hear, Googling racial inequity and see what you, what you find, Googling uh, white supremacy and see what you find. Because, you know, a lot of times in our daily sort of vernacular around the subject, we think white supremacy is extreme right, KKK, Nazi type um, behavior, that that's white supremacy. But in truth, white supremacy is simply the belief, whether conscious or unconscious, that whiteness is superior and is supreme and should be,
3: you know how in this country, for white people and among
2: white people, unless we're really working on it. For instance, we have a subconscious belief and expectation that we will lead in the organizations that we are, in the churches we're in, in the whatever, that that our perspective, that our opinion is needed because we're white and so therefore as the result of white supremacy being what it is and whiteness always being dominant in this culture from the time of the founding of our country this is baked into us and if we're not working on a regular basis to see it in ourselves and how it shows up then we we naturally fall right in line with it, with, with the belief that for some reason white culture is more valuable, white, whatever, tastes or, or preferences or opinions are more important, right? It's in there. And we have to, it takes, it takes work, it takes daily work to be aware of how and when it's coming up and then to know what to do with it. You know, something else too that comes up for me when we're talking about this is a lot of white people work in the field of diversity, equity, inclusion, work in uh, organizations that are meant to further the conversation on creating equity in our organizations, but they don't do the work themselves. They've been to college they have a degree, they did some work, and then at some point, they became satisfied within themselves that they knew enough to do what it was that they wanted to do. But if they're not doing the the work, the personal work on the daily, then what ends up happening is they end up in leadership roles in these organizations, creating inequity in their own organizations. As the result of the, the way that white supremacy is so unconsciously dominant for most white people?
1: Wow, I'm seeing some amens in the chat, some aha moments. You know, as they say, you know, where I'm from, some people, including black people, have this perception of if it ain't white, it ain't right. And I love how you describe it. You have people in DEI, you know, the jobs, the the roles that are supposed to be moving the needle, doing the improvement, who are still operating in the not doing the work, but in that, if it ain't white, it ain't right mentality. Black, Mm -hmm. brown, orange, yellow, whatever you want to call it. If it ain't white, it ain't right. Man, I want to go there, but I want to get to the good part man, these books that you have reviewed, um, tell us about this book club that you started, when you started it, why you started it. And, you know, I got some questions, but I want to hit a backdrop first because I know it's so much more than a book club. I was reading an article somewhere where they said, you know, when black people are in pain, white people start a book club. It made me laugh.
2: Yeah, and here, what did I do? <laughs> but, but, but let me say this. Let me say this. There's more to it. it first of all, were you finished? Because I do not want to interrupt.
1: No, no, no. You're fine. Go. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead.
2: No, no. no. I, I think it was perfect. Um, and shout out to my friend uh, and co-collaborator on that project, uh, James Crumlin, who is such an inspiration uh, himself. Uh, he's an attorney here in Nashville, and. So this wasn't a white man starting a book club first, uh, but what it was was a black man and a white man starting a book club together with the intention of doing what we could do in our own backyard, so to speak, on Zoom, to further conversations that we were really inspired by, um, where, where occasionally we are now, fortunately, seeing, you know, a white man and a black man talking, right? Just sharing experiences, sharing views. And so the way that it came about was we were both asked to be on a panel for leadership mental Tennessee called Advancing Equity. And James and I, during the course of this panel, I think we really resonated on several different points that we discussed that day. And so we we set up a Zoom. Uh, the following week, just to kind of get it to know each other, because we hadn't had the pleasure of meeting before that uh, panel discussion, which was also during COVID, so it was uh, also um, done via Zoom. So, when we talked, one of us I can't remember who it was basically said, Well, I just feel like we need to keep this going, like, what, what could we do? And so, in the course of the conversation, we landed on, Why don't we? pick a book, pick a date, pick a time, toss it out to our social media communities and just talk about it. Just talk about what was in the book that made us stop and pause and think, and maybe, you know, reflect. So we did. And the first book we did was Ibram Kendi's how to be an anti-racist. Um, we had a great group and a great conversation. And um, that book in and of itself, to me, is life-changing because many reasons. Um, and my, my child, as you can see here, is a little unruly this evening. He yes, works, the, those fur
1: babies, they can tell when you're having fun without them.
2: Only and...
1: the camp the, the red light
2: goes on, because otherwise he is in his own little world. Mm-hmm. It's the funniest thing. But anyway... Um, we'll probably hear him howl a little bit in a minute if we have any siren activity because he loves to do that. So but anyway, um back to back to the book club. So Ibram Kendi one of the most important things I think in that book is he stresses the importance of addressing racism in policy. That if it's not written down, then we're not committed to it. We're not serious. So what that gave me was an understanding of how I could work in the organizations that you know for for instance Nashville Pride is a is a very important organization um, that I serve and how can we look at our policies, our bylaws and work with professionals, consultants who do this work on a regular basis to see how those bylaws and how those policies, are either racist or anti-racist. And then make the necessary amendments to ensure that our bylaws are anti-racist and be an example in our community of what it means to incorporate anti-racism into your words, into your policies, into your missions, into your commitments. Because you know everybody will always say, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. So if it's not written down, we're not really committed.
1: Awesome.
2: It's yeah. So that's one of the one of the most powerful things, I think, in the in the first book that we did. And then it just um, it went from there. And we've had seven so far and uh, we're on hiatus right now, but we'll probably pick back up in the fall later in the fall, um, probably November um, with our next book. So,
1: well, we'll definitely make sure we share that information. So when you do pick back up, then People who are here tonight can join. Now, tell me this. Out of the books you read, the seven books, and I put them in the chat, which one was your favorite and why?
3: Cast. Okay. Cast was my favorite because to me,
2: it puts what I feel like I'm looking at in really solid perspective. For instance, Isabel Wilkerson, the author of CAST, talks about how she doesn't even use the word racism, by the way, in her work because she feels like we have to have language around the conversation that can lead to openings and she feels like as the result of so much confusion around what racism is and what being racist is that a lot of times conversations don't continue past those words, racist or racism. It's just over. So she thinks that she, she speaks about the need for different language around it. I think that's very powerful. Um, Obviously if we're going to evolve, then we have to continue seeing these things and, and, in newer and uh, with fresh eyes, let's put it that way. So in cast, She talks about how we don't live in a class system, as many people would argue, but we live in a caste system, which basically says that as the result of the color of someone's skin, the value of their life is so dictated. And one of the powerful things I think that I remember her saying in the book is, for example, if we lived in a class system, then any black or brown person who made enough money and rose through the class system would not be subject to the reality of being immediately dejected back to the lowest level of the caste system if they were unrecognizable. And she gives this beautiful example, uh, powerful example that she lived herself because she rose to the ranks as a writer at the New York Times. And one day she went to interview a man whom she will not name, Class. And it's amazing. That's to me, I think (laughs) if I was her, I would totally put him on blast. But anyway, (laughs) she, she will not name him, but she went to interview him and he repeatedly told her, I don't have time to talk to you. I'm waiting on an interviewer from the New York Times because he obviously didn't expect that a black woman would be showing up to interview him. And she said to him, I'm the one you talk to. I'm here at the time I was supposed to be. The interview is set. Could please, you know, can we please move forward? And he asked her that he was going to need a business card or some kind of credential. She said, you know, i I came straight from home this morning. I haven't been to the office, whatever. I don't have a business card with me today just by chance. But, you know, I am the person that, you know, is interviewing you before the New York Times. He never would do the interview. She had, he made her leave. So it's a perfect example of how, in this example, as a black woman, when she was unrecognizable, when she was not affiliated, with the forms that the class system would support, it shows how we actually have a caste system because she was de-elevated in that instant when she was not recognizable and able to be associated
1: with a higher class. Great, great, great example. You know, it happens to be that actually is my favorite as well. And it was for different reasons. One thing I love about the book, Cast, is that it takes India in their history of known public caste and for every role, behavior, formal class, behavior, status, situation, she did a parallel and she says, this is what happens in India. This is what happens here in the US. You know, in India, if a person is born here And this is how it shows up in America. And she begins to break it down. Another favorite part of my story is when M.O.K. goes to visit India. And they tell the story of he goes, you know, this is one time he's rising in fame and he's following Gandhi or someone and he wants to go to India. And he goes there and, you know, he's received with high acclaim. So they give him a tour of the country and things as such. And one place that they made sure he stopped is at the lowest of the low in India. They're called the untouchables. The Dalits. Yes. The untouchables and the leader or the teacher of this group of untouchables. Yes. They were excited. And he told the children, Hey, we have this awesome person to come and speak to you guys. He's from the U S he's whatever. And he is a fellow, untouchable. Mm -hmm. MLK was like, huh, me? No, I'm MLK, I'm the the man. It wasn't until some time later that he began to digest and realize that he, in that description, was quite accurate. He may have been there as a world-renowned visitor, but in his home, he was just an untouchable, mm-hmm. but let's keep going. Tell me this. What was the most difficult book for you to get through and why? I,
2: mm, I won't say difficult, but what I will say is um, sort of the information was a bit newer to me and, and not, uh, it was the um, Resma um, my grandmother's hands, because it talks about, you know, our experience Um, with unresolved trauma that is generational and that's passed down um, generation to generation. And so it was a fascinating book, but it was not as easily, I guess, digestible to me because I didn't have as much um, context going into it that I was familiar with. Um, but a very very powerful read and I think it puts it, it, it brings in the piece that I think we're not yet speaking enough about in the mainstream conversation around inequity and racism um and that is that on both sides you know on on the side of um, uh, white white people black and black and brown people um the oppressed and the oppressor on both sides there is generational trauma generational, um, Cellular belief that is passed down that affects the way that we show up. But what's so challenging, maybe, uh, is that it is unconscious. So, helping, you know, a lot of the work that I really find valuable is helping white people understand that I fully realize that you don't think what you are experiencing is about racism. Because it's not consciously about racism a lot of times, but that doesn't mean that it's not about racism. So getting sort of embracing that understanding that a lot of this that's in me is going to be unconscious. And so I have to watch at what I'm inclined to do, even though I'm not having a conscious thought about it. What's that inclination about? Where does that come from, right? So Res um book is really powerful with regard to, uh, to that, that information.
1: You know, it's, it's funny how you describe it. I, I would definitely say it's on the softer skills side or the things that are, uh, I don't know the best way to describe it, but if you're a psychologist or a, a therapist, then I think you'll really like this book. One last question, and then what we're going to do is take some questions from the audience. So mm-hmm. audience, if you would, we're dealing with a sensitive topic. So if you don't mind, if you want to ask a question, then turn on your camera. And raise your hand. Um, we'll give you a chance to ask a question. If you're more shy or want to be, you know, less, you know, let's say visible, feel free to type your question into the chat, and we'll make sure we get it there. So we're gonna do some open discussion, and also we have DJ afrosheen tonight, Lady afrosheen She's gonna. If you guys were here earlier, she got us started. She got us all in the zone. So she's going to come back and, you know, play some more music. But before we um, hear DJ Afro Sheen, let's get ready for some questions. And let's um, get one last question for Vic um, before I go to the audience. So Vic, you know, knowing what you know now, if you had to start all over, because in dealing with this topic, it's really hard for me even, right? I'm one of those persons where I can't watch too much of this stuff on TV because I become overwhelmed. You know, I'm an empath, as some people would say, you know, I'm sensitive to these things. It really, it, it gets into me, Right. Mm-hmm. So in preparing for the show, I had to really get my mind right, you know, but eventually I got through it. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know now, if you had to read these books in a different order, which book would you read first and which book would you probably read last just to kind of help you get into the topic? And this is for people out there who are considering getting started and, you know, start reading these books now.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first book I would read is the Oluo, um, So You Want to Talk About Race. And the reason why I think I would have read that first in hindsight is because I think she does a brilliant job at, first of all, making you as the reader feel like you are sitting across from her at a kitchen table and she has her beer and you have your beer. (laughs) And she's just telling you the truth about her reality And she is not blaming you for it. She, As a white person, she's not blaming you. She's not changing her experience in order to make you feel more comfortable uh, about what her reality has been. And she is very clear about accountability and about what she feels like is hers to do and what she feels like is mine to do as a white man. Um, Everything in that book I feel like is powerful because it's so practical and it's so heart centric to me. It's like, she is just laying her heart in a very, her heart out in the words in a very eloquent and, and powerful way. So I would have read that first.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And lastly, which book would you have read last and why?
2: I think probably White Rage. Okay. Errol Anderson book, because after I've learned sort of the, the history, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, after I've learned some of the experiences of present day, then let me go back and really get an understanding of historically speaking, Why in this country? What has happened? What have been the ways that white men specifically have banded together to create legislation and again policy intentionally to keep black and brown people What's the word I want to use? I don't want to just say to keep them down, to keep black and brown people down, but to definitely keep black and brown people at a disadvantage and at a greater challenge with greater challenges. Uh, subordinated. Thank you, Barbara. Um, perfect word. Um, and and I think that's probably the one that I would have read last because I would have had more context going into it that would have helped me uh, understand
1: it a bit better. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Vic. This has been awesome, man. Thank you for sharing your story, your experience for continuing to be so vulnerable, so direct, empathetic at the same time. So what do we have from the audience? Katie, um, Tamika, what do we have? What what do people talk about? I've seen some pop-ups. What's going on?
0: So I'd like to give the first question to Arva and then I've got a question coming to you from Ellie. So, Arva, please turn on your mic. Thank you. Thank you so much,
3: Um, Vic. This has been awesome. I have a question for you. So I want to know, how did you persist past the, oh, that wasn't my fault? Oh, you know, I never did anything to anyone. Oh, this is uncomfortable. You know, you know, because there are a lot of um, well-meaning white people who, who say, oh, yeah, you know, I got to do something, you know, we have to do something. And then when they start to do the work, there's like a cognitive dissonance going on, like, oh, no, this is too much. Or is it really that bad? Um or I just feel uncomfortable. So, how did you push past that? How did you persist in order to continue to do the work to become an, an ally?
2: The support of chosen family. That's a huge. it's made a huge difference in my life. Um, the the work that I do as well. I mean, it's it uh, working in HIV. You. I won't say that you don't have a choice because again, there are plenty of white people that work in HIV that I don't think are as readily engaged um, in the work that we've been talking about. Um, But I just feel like for me working in this field, I see the effects of racism firsthand so blatantly on a consistent basis that, uh, and again, maybe it's about my wiring and my personality. I'm that person that I, I feel like if you see uh, a spill, you know. If you see something that needs to be done, wipe, this, wipe the this spill up. Do something. You know, what can I do? I need to be about the business of addressing whatever it is I'm looking at. So I think that's a lot of my wiring. Um, you know i I think emotional difficulty has become a bit easier for me or more more familiar for me um, as the result of growing up gay in a very conservative world. Um, uh, many times I've said I w- football was king and I was a queen uh, where I grew up, and that was tough. And so from a very early age, I um, learned what it felt like to go through emotional struggle. And um, so I'm not afraid of it.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Uh,
2: I'm not one of those people that would necessarily feel like that was a deal breaker for me. So, and, you know, frankly, I don't believe that, you know, unfortunately not all white people are going to be up for this work in their lifetime, you know? Um, But for the ones of us that are, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're here and we're, and we're going to keep, keep going. So.
3: Can I ask a follow-up question? So because so much of this is about um, your wiring, your personality, your own personal experience and the work that you do, what would you say to inspire other, um, other, you know, non-people of color to become an ally? What would you say to inspire them if they don't have, you know, the gravitas that your life has had in the experience that you've had as a part of in your life.
2: Um, you know, I'm not really sure that there is something that you can say because I think that either you are somebody who cares about suffering or you aren't.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And some of us have just not evolved to a place where we are in touch with the suffering of others similarly to the way that we're in touch with our own. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I, like I said, I don't know that they're really, cause believe me, I've been in a lot of conversations with a lot of white people um, who just are really, really committed to not seeing in order so that they don't have to be responsible for acting and for, and for, you know, learning and like you said, going through the emotional difficulty, the hard work, the hard parts. I'm not sure that there's any one thing you or, you know, I wish there was a magic sentence that you could help people see, uh, see it differently. But my focus is more. I'm here for those who are ready. And I'm here for uh, my own continuing Mm -hmm. my own education. Uh, That's my focus. To, to continue my own education and to be here in support and service to those who are also ready at this time.
1: And I love it, Vic. I love it, Vic. And I love how consistent you are. I know when we originally talked, you said, you know, I'm no teacher,
0: Mm-mm.
1: but I have a story to share mm-hmm. and I want to share my experience. And it just made me think about that old fashioned testimony and sharing your story. So I, I love that. Katie, what you got next for us?
0: Sure, so um, again, Vic, thank you so much for being with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, You've been absolutely fabulous. Um, I have a question from Effie who wanted me to ask this question for her. She wanted to know, first of all, she wanted to thank you for being here also, but she'd like to know how your actions changed after studying the books. Can you share that with us?
2: Yes, and I think, I can think of a few main ways, but literally, you know, there's no way that I could sit here and tell you all the ways, but I know some of the ways are, I'm much more about the business of not being afraid to call out, for instance, in a board meeting. Um, Were we not going to, I just did this last night, so that's why it's top of mind. Were we not going to look at the Uh, part of the bylaws for new board members that says you have to have previous board experience in order to serve because a lot of times service on other boards of directors is not, is not something that's made available to black and Brown people uh, for many reasons. And so if we have a stipulation in our bylaws that says you have to have previous board service in order to serve on the pride board, well, that can be considered to be racist. So it's a prime example of, you know, trying to grow in my understanding and my awareness of how I can help policy change. That's really, really important. Policy, policy, the the written part. And then also, you know, realizing that as a white man, I don't need to always be heard from. I told, um, I told Calvin, you know, sometimes it's, it's, we need to hear from a white man. Sometimes we don't, And just realizing that a lot of times my best and most important work is in supporting Black and Brown voices, elevating Black and Brown How can I help you? How can I, you know, not necessarily, I don't necessarily need to be the president of the organization, but let's elect someone who can serve and then let's figure out how we can best support them in their service, in their place of visibility, right? Um, That's something that, you know, has really been a new understanding in the last, you know, five or so years that, you know, I don't have to always talk or be, you know, there's, there's a place and a time, but it's not always. And, you know, my opinion is not the most important because I'm the white man, you know? So those, those kinds of, uh, I guess, realizations
1: uh, are a few things that come to mind, but,
0: you know, I'm I know you
3: just
1: made a friend, um, Vic, because Katie is so happy because I know she's getting ready to talk about her board experiences. I'm yes, she is. <laughs> Did you see how happy she got when you said yeah. something about boards?
0: Yeah, that's not it. That's not it. Actually, my follow up question to you. And again, thank you, Effie, for your question is how do you balance um, sharing your expertise with knowing when you need to step back and and not speak? How do you, how do you
2: walk that thin line? Well, first of all, the default is not speaking. <laughs> That's <Okay>. the thing. <laughs> and then when I sit with something for a few minutes and I feel and I, you know, I'm like, now, do I really does this really need to be said? Does this really need to be in the space? Um, if I so the short answer is it's very intuitive. Um if I feel a, a press, a, a, a sort of a sense of, this is where you are needed now, then I will. But um, it's, it's it's about an awareness of, and a consideration, a pause. And, you know, maybe somebody else will say it. Maybe, let me wait a little bit, see if somebody else says it first, right? Um, I think that in and of itself is just very different from maybe how I was 15 years ago.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Just that pause of consideration that there are other perspectives and opinions and voices in the room.
1: Awesome. How
0: available are you to teach other people, right?
1: I told you, (laughs) I told you she's gonna network. You already have his email address, Katie.
2: Available Available for this conversation anytime for sure.
1: Yeah. So, so Vic, I'm going to make sure we share information because I know um, your website had changed or something because it wasn't working, but if you don't mind putting in the chat how people can be in contact with you, you know, we typically share social media websites. Your website was redirecting to a weird place. So please share contact information. So um, I'm pretty sure Vic does consulting work. He does DEI work. And as you see, he's a friend. He's willing to sit down and talk with everyone. And I know Katie uh, will be inviting you to come speak to some of her board meetings because she's already excited. So let me recap the show, right? Tonight, people, we broke it down. For people who just got here, I know y'all are here to see DJ Afro Sheen. You know what I mean? They ain't come for Daddy Rich. They came for Afro Sheen. But okay, it's okay. I mean, she got the name, right? But Afro-Sheen is now Southern Soul, right? So, but anyway, we talked to Vic. Vic gave us his honest story. Hey, I'm no teacher. I'm just a person with a story to share. Vic went from working in HIV support, where he advocated for people, learning and benefiting from the skills of empathy and relating to things where two plus two just wasn't adding up. did he continue to do his consulting work and getting into DAI, starting virtual book clubs, not because black people were in pain, but because he had some deep heartfelt conversations with some close friends. He had an uncomfortable moment, but Vic says, hey, <clears throat> based on how I grew up, I wasn't afraid. I was offended. I was in my feelings, but I got over that. And I persisted to educate myself on what's been going on. And now his book club is seven books in, and it'll be starting up again to go into some other books. So, thank you all for being here tonight, Vic. Thank you for sharing your story. Look forward to being in touch. Katie will put you to work, so feel free to say no
0: if she invites you to too many board meetings. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.